Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. I'm here with Philip Matty Matisak. Is that the proper pronunciation? Uh, pretty close, yeah. There's Pretty close. Matty Shack. So Matty Shack. Okay. Matt in front and you're close enough. <laughs> okay, great. And he is a British nonfiction author with a specialty in ancient history. He has a doctorate in Roman history from St. John's College, Oxford, and he teaches ancient history for the Institute of Continuing Education at Cambridge University. Some of his many books include 24 Hours in Ancient Athens, Sparta, Rise of a Warrior Nation, Hercules, the First Superhero, and in 2020, Forgotten Peoples of the Ancient World. Um, so I, I was looking at your website and looking at all the books, and it's quite an extensive uh, list. <laughs> so you're publishing uh, books, at, you know, a book every year, it seems like. So that's very, very impressive. Um, I was thinking that we could start out and talk some about your book, Forgotten Peoples of the Ancient World, and then possibly uh, um, after that, we could talk a little bit about um, Hercules, if you have time. Uh, I'd sure. love to hear a little bit about that. And he's a hero that I, I just got a book about him. Uh, it's actually called Heracles after the Greek version. Uh, and I've been kind of reading about him. So I'm, I'm very curious what your thoughts are. So um, does that sound okay? Yeah, sure. In fact, Heracles is more accurate because you know the story of why he's called Heracles. So I, in the book that I'm reading now, this, this, this story, it, it breaks down the meaning of the name a little bit into basically the, uh, he's named after the glory of the goddess Hera. Is that? Yeah. Hera really was on Hercules's case from the beginning. This was one of several attempts to pacify her that didn't work. Yes. Yeah. So I've been, you know, I don't have any, I don't have much knowledge about kind of the the actual language and the different words and things, but I've been learning a little bit. And I'm wondering, uh, before we get too far, I'm wondering about your volume level and whether we can ratchet it up a little bit. I don't know. I, I, I can hear you okay, but I just, I want to make sure that, um, you know, uh, I can hear you okay, but it's a little low. It's a little lower than usual. Yeah, that's a, a problem I've had with these speakers. They're new ones, and um, really, um, I, I, I've got my volume cranked up to max, but um, okay. that's this is something a number of people have complained about in Zoom meetings, so I might have to change my headset eventually. That sounds a little bit better, the last 10 or 15 seconds, and I can probably turn the volume up a bit when I post the recording, but uh, it should be okay. I think we'll be okay. Um, okay, so... Jumping in, I mean, the first question I like to ask people is kind of about why they chose to write a certain book. And so I'll pose that same question to you as it relates to the Forgotten Peoples of the Ancient World, which is a really cool title and it sounds really interesting. Why did you choose to write a book about this subject? Well, th this came out of a discussion with one of my editors at Thames and Hudson, where he had recently seen an atlas of forgotten stamps which was stamps from very obscure parts of the world, from countries that no longer existed. And 
he said, you know, it's actually um, pretty much the same thing with the ancient world. We always go on about the Greeks, the Romans, and the Jews, but there were a horde of other people there. And I said, yes, indeed, there were. There the Luwians and the Elamites. And then there was this pause, and we sort of um, both said simultaneously, you know, there's a book in this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it looked like when I was looking at the uh, description of the book, it looks like you profiled about 40 different forgotten peoples. Um, how did you go about doing that? And uh, why, why did you try? Why did you take that approach? Well, there was, I think we started with a list of something like 120 peoples. And then we just sort of filtered them down. Um, and there were two criteria we had to use. One is that if you walked up to somebody on the street and said, what do you know about the so-and-sos? If you got a blank look and the answer was who? That was one criterion met. The other one had to be that we had to know enough about them to be able to actually write something. Right. So we had, on the one side, we needed to know something about them. On the other hand, they needed to be forgotten. And this is, in, in this case, by the man on the street. And so, interesting. And so, why, I'm really curious as to why some of these ancient peoples are forgotten. And kind of, does it boil down to just, whether or not they were writing stuff down and, and that kind of thing. I mean, could you maybe give us an example of, of a forgotten people or culture that would, that, you know, that you profiled and that was quite impressive possibly, but that now we've, we've more or less, it's fallen out of the popular, you know, knowledge. Okay. Let's um, start with your first question. Why have they been forgotten? And this is because of what I emphasize in the book is the telescope idea of history, where people have this idea that most of history happened in a very busy afternoon a few centuries ago. And all the important stuff has happened since. Um, I remember some magazine recently produced a list of the 100 most important people in history. And Sargon of Acadia, and I would say the Acadians are one example of a forgotten people. He produced the world's first comprehensive law code, showed that you could govern a nation rather than an individual city. And yet he didn't make the top 100, but Justin Bieber did. So, <laughs> so it's a lot of this is kind of a, a recency bias in a sense? It, it's very much so, yes. Um, if you look at any list of the 100 most significant whatevers, you'll find the last 100 years feature more than the rest of antiquity put together. And people don't realize how long antiquity actually lasted. An example of this I'll give is when the historian Herodotus went to see the Great Pyramid in Egypt, the Great Pyramid of Giza, that pyramid then was half as old as it is now. It already got through half its lifetime by the time we reach what we now consider ancient history. Right, right. And so, and, and so the the dates that we're considering to be ancient history basically are, are what about 3000 BC to 500 AD? Is that correct? Well, we have to distinguish between ancient history and classical history. Okay. Classical history, which is um, Greeks and Romans, kicks off around 800 BC with the end of the archaic era. Ancient history goes back, you could probably say around 6,000 years before that, if you're looking for our earliest records. Um, 
And even then, there seems to be some evidence. Now people have started digging below the Sumerians. There was somebody else before that that we don't know about. Right. So we go back an awfully long way. Okay. Interesting. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I think um, when, you know, and I'll put myself in the shoes of the average person here, uh, of just when I imagine ancient history, I think, uh, I think ancient Egypt, I think mm -hmm. ancient Greece, I think ancient Rome, those are the three things that come to mind and have maybe because of the way they've been de depicted in films and shows and, and also things like the pyramids, which still exist. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, did you come across, I'm curious what your, you know, were there other civilizations that were at that level of sophistication and kind of prestige and dominance and that have now basically people don't really know, you know, uh, the average person doesn't know anything about or maybe hasn't even heard of? Well, in terms of dominance, um, the Greeks and the Romans contributed so much to our culture and the Egyptians contributed so much to the Greeks and Romans that, yes, those are the ones who think of, particularly in terms of dominance. But, for example, um, let's have a look at um, Egypt. And do you know that the Egyptians didn't build the most pyramids? That was a country to the south called the Kushites. Mm. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, so what we do is we tend to look at things through a bit of a filter. And in a way, um, when we say Romans, we're talking shorthand. And because the Romans themselves were a mongrel people and a lot of their culture came from Greece, a lot of it came from the Etrurians, a lot of it as we're turning out came from the Villanovan cultures and the people of Austro-Hungary. Every of one of the big cultures is actually an amalgam of a whole bunch of smaller cultures which all fed into this one main central theme. Okay. And, do, you know, I also think there's a bias to kind of thinking about the ancient cultures that were around the Mediterranean Sea. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, obviously you have, again, Rome, Greece, Egypt, all of them kind of in that region, you know, more or less. Uh, Don't forget the Hebrews, by the way. They had a major cultural influence on the modern world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In the ancient Hebrews. I need to, I need to, I'm looking forward to, to diving into uh, to that and some more uh, kind of the history behind, you know, biblical times and those cultures and things uh, sometime soon. I'm really interested in, in it. And I looked into it some in college, but I haven't revisited much. Um, but I guess my question is, you know, is, is does your book also kind of focus on that region or, you know, are, are there are there a lot of these ancient civilizations and people spreading out kind of more into the interior of Asia and in Africa and other other areas. Do we know much about that? Okay, um, well, I'm, I'm an ancient historian. So my focus um, as the book actually doesn't specify, but when we look at the ancient world, we generally refer to the ancient Mediterranean world. Okay. Ancient China, for instance, or Mesoamerica pre Columbian is a totally different animal. Yeah. And we ruled them out simply because I utterly lacked the expertise to talk about them. Right. What you'll see in the book is we start in Mesopotamia. Then we start inching out towards um, Anatolia, towards the Levant. And we look at Egypt and south of Egypt, particularly. And then civilization sort of slowly spreads westward. 
in some of the final chapters, we're looking at the Jutes, for example, in Britain. But I okay. did then manage to um, wrap it up by taking it all the way back to the Hephthalites, who are the White Huns in um, Mesopotamia again. Okay, okay. Um, so, okay, so is Mesopotamia, is that basically the region where we saw some of the first civilization? I mean, that's kind of the, I, I feel like that's what I learned in, in school at one point. Yep. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I mean, th this is where people are thinking out the very fundamentals of what it means to have a civilization. Things like, okay, you've got buildings. Where do you put the doors? How about putting them on the roofs and connecting the roofs? No, you prefer streets? All this kind of thing is what was being worked out back then. Stuff that we absolutely take for granted now. Yeah, yeah. And so, and, and is there anything that... Um... Is there anything that really surprised you? I mean, obviously, you had you had a, a good knowledge about this subject matter before writing the book, but in researching and kind of trying to find more of these ancient civilizations and ancient peoples, like, was there anything that really surprised you and kind of you you know you were amazed by that you didn't know that or you hadn't seen that before? Um, what I was surprised about is how much of bits of these ancient civilizations have still hung around. Um, when we talk about cutting the Gordian knot, and suddenly we're referring to the Phrygian civilization, or someone riches Croesus, and um, we're then now looking at the Lycian civilizations. And a lot of things have just uh, turned up in modern metaphors, um, odd bits of language. When we say somebody has feet of clay, um, that's probably the only thing you know about the Neo-Babylonians is that they had kings who ran foul of the prophet Daniel, this kind of thing. Okay, okay. I, one thing that I um, have always been curious about, and I, I guess this isn't really a, a one of the lost peoples, but I've always been curious about the the Persian Empire during the days of Alexander, and we've looked into... Uh, that period of Greece a lot on the podcast. And we've heard about these cities like Persepolis and Babylon and, uh, and kind of how grand and um, impressive some of these cities were. Uh, and they don't have the same, you know, today, I think people think of Rome and Athens and stuff, they might not know much about ancient Babylon or something like that. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? And did you, it was that it would that, uh, empire the persian empire at the time has would that qualify as one of these forgotten peoples or is that just way more well known and uh and you know um well when you talk about the persian empire don't forget a lot of the peoples we're talking about were part of the persian empire which was definitely not an empire of persians there were a huge variety of people including babylonians um inside the persian empire um and we couldn't really, because the Persians were one of those we discussed, you can't really describe them as a forgotten people, because um, when you say we don't know them that well, um, you're obviously excluding, say, the Iranians and the Turks yeah. and the Khazars, who probably know the Persian Empire yeah. better than they know the Roman Empire. Right, right. So some of this is kind of a bias in living in the Western world and looking at Greece or something um, and knowing less in kind of the biases that of how these different peoples are portrayed even in film and stuff like that. Um, interesting. So just out of curiosity, I mean, which of these, 
uh, forgotten ancient peoples, um, uh, are, are you are, are, are you are you surprised that any of them aren't more prominent today? Like where you look at them and you say, "Wow, they were in many ways just as you know influential and impressive at the time as uh, as as places we do know about, we do know more about." Um, but they've just been, you know, for some reason they just uh, people lost interest or they didn't their myths and stuff weren't passed along as much. Yeah, I'd, I'd go with the Kushites who I mentioned earlier. Um, hmm. For instance, the fact that um, for a while Kush actually conquered Egypt and Egypt had a line of black pharaohs is not something that um, has become mainstream knowledge. Their ironwork was regarded as superior to anything you could get in the West at the time. And um, they were one of the very first examples of environmental degradation in that their large cities were actually destroyed because they just ruined much of the environment around them, which you could say is a byproduct of a sophisticated civilization rather than a primitive one. And this is the Kushites. And so they were south of, of the Egyptian kingdom, basically? Exactly, yeah. South okay. of Elephantine. Okay, wow. Uh, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't even heard of them. Um, ancient Egypt is another area that I really want to get into more in the podcast. Uh, it's like, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I've been fascinated with it since I was young and uh, it just seems like such a big subject to dive into but looking forward to that as well um well, so one of the things you'll find is you're actually looking at ancient egypt because northern egypt and southern egypt were very different places and in fact um when you look at the egyptian pharaoh he was king of both in the same way that um the queen of england is queen of scotland and england they're different cultures different places and just happen to have the same ruler okay and so I'll just remind uh, listeners here that we are talking about uh, the 2020 book, Forgotten Peoples of the Ancient World um, by Philip Matty. Uh, Shack. <laughs> what, is, what is it again? Matty Shack. Matty Shack. Okay, great. Who's a British nonfiction author and historian. So, um, okay, wow. Uh, so... And by the way, I, a small correction there. I also write fiction. Oh, you also do write fiction. Indeed. Have a look okay. at my Lucius Pandarius novels. Okay, great. All right. Well, we'll link to those two in the show notes. Um, are they, are they, so they're historical type uh, fiction? Very much so. Um, it's um, a challenge that um, somebody once put to me that expanded into a series of novels, which was to write a historical fiction novel which a modern historian would not be able to prove was wrong. That wow. is to say, everything has to be consistent with the sources. It's just I'm able to stick in extra information. Right, right. It's all, yeah, that's great. That's, that's the kind of stuff that uh, I think is the best for readers too who are interested in history because you want to think that it was plausible that what you're reading was, you know, could have, could have happened. It's, it's plausible that this would, you know, something like this was happening. Um, so and it's okay. actually the reason why I can't read historical fiction. If I read a really good historical fiction book, I pick up information as I get from reading everything. And then I'm never sure what I'm regurgitating is right. fact or fiction. So I have to stick to fact. <laughs> it all, it all blends in. Um, great. Interesting. Well, again, so you profiled 40 different peoples um, who have been sort of lost uh, to the modern imagination and um, modern popular culture. And uh, 
with with some of these um, ancient peoples, uh, was part of it that they weren't building, um, uh, they they weren't as ambitious about things that they were building, and there's not as much of an archaeological record. Does that play into why uh, they haven't, um, you know, uh, they haven't been remembered as much? Um, I think the reasons vary according to the people. Um, quite often, the reason that we know of another ancient people is how often and how violently they came into contact with the big three. For instance, of the peoples I described, the sea peoples, the only ones that we know to any extent are the Philistines. Mm -hmm. And the reason we know the Philistines is because they and the Jews clashed quite violently um, during the historical period. And the Jewish historical record is one that's exceptionally well preserved. So the result is we learn of the Philistines almost as a side effect. In the same way, we learn about the Celts because Julius Caesar wrote a lot about the Gallic Celts. But we don't know about Celts in other parts simply because there was nobody from our civilizations who recorded them. I see. I see. So, okay, so going off that for a second, um, when you were talking about the Sea Peoples and kind of the, we've talked some on this podcast about the the 12th century collapse of some of the Mediterranean civilizations. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. And is that a, is that one of the, you know, um, is that one of the primary reasons that we, uh, that some of these ancient peoples were kind of lost um, or, you know, or you look, you're looking at things from a much broader timeline as well. So, uh, but how did that, how did that collapse in the 12th century play into uh this book and these peoples? Um, in a big way. Um, you look at some people, like um, the Aramaic peoples, who at the time of the collapse were pretty much pastoral individuals living on the fringes of civilization. Once the collapse came, because they were, if you like, pre-collapsed and adapted to it, they were able to expand and move into areas where our previously collapsed civilizations were unable to maintain themselves. So um, the result is we get, for example, the Dorians, who we now suspect were always kicking around in um, ancient Greece. But it took the collapse of the Mycenaean civilization for them to be able to expand and take over most of the Peloponnese, for example. So what you could argue is that one person's catastrophic collapse of civilization is another culture's opportunity. Right, right. So I have to ask you as well kind of about the Mycenaeans and uh, whether or not they were included in this, um, and and kind of what your thoughts are on on how uh, on their decline, uh, because as you know, we, the show Ancient Heroes, we talk about the myths and stuff that go back on some level. We don't know what level, but can be traced back somehow back to the Mycenaean age of of Greece and the in the uh, the mythical age of heroes. So. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Mycenaeans and, and how they've, um, and, and kind of their decline and, and do they play into your book at all? Okay, um, actually, the, one of the peoples I cover is the Dorians rather than the Mycenaeans, who I regard as slightly too well known. Okay. Um, and one thing that's obvious about Mycenaean culture is um, it didn't so much fade away as hit a brick wall and collapse. Um, we have examples of cities that were burned, hastily rebuilt, burned again and abandoned. So yeah, something really, really nasty was going on um, during the end of the 12th century. And nobody has fully figured out exactly what it was. 
Um, going on to your heroes, at the moment, I'm actually doing a book on the gods of Greece and Rome. Mm. And one of the things I keep finding out is that Zeus, our king of the gods, is actually one of the youngest <laughs> of them. And when we look at other gods like um, Poseidon, Athena, Hera, we find out that they actually predate Zeus by some time. And we can find them, or oh, examples of them, like Demeter, in um, Linear B scripts, which we don't really find for Zeus. So it's, yeah, and, and that's, so some of these, some of the gods uh, that were, that became prominent in classical times, um, they can be traced back into the archaic age and the Mycenaean age. And, but it's almost like you have the old, yeah. So you kind of have a, the oldest gods that we know of. And then Zeus and some others are, are newer basically, and were developed yeah. in later times. Well, we can see this in um, the myths themselves where we get Zeus who comes from Crete and then takes over from the older gods, in this case, Cronus and Rhea. Now, it's not hard to reinterpret the, the war with the Titans as being simply the worship of one god supplanting another in the minds of people. So the war didn't happen around Olympus as the Greeks imagined it, but it actually happened in the minds and in the temples of the Greeks themselves. Okay. And so, and, and maybe this would be a good segue into some of the conversation about Heracles and, and, and you know, I've always been especially interested in Achilles. And as I started looking into the ancient heroes more, the mythical heroes of Greece, Heracles, you know, it became clear to me that he was on this pedestal almost above all of the other heroes and, and seemed to have a, a, um, a wider amount of following and information and more myths and things. And so um, I'm, I'm curious kind of uh, to know a little bit of more about who Heracles was and kind of what role he played. I guess we can start maybe with the, the Greek side and then talk more about how things may have changed during Roman times if they did. Um, but just um, can you talk a little bit about, about the myth of Heracles and what what his role was in, in kind of uh, this mythological tradition. Okay, um, well, the f one of the first things to note is that if we're looking at it from a non-narrative perspective, um, that is to say, instead of assuming the story of Heracles is one compact and internally consistent myth, um, we find out that Heracles is actually a composite character. Mm. Um, there is a Heracles from Lycia, there's an Egyptian Heracles who's got the same name and some of whose myths have been incorporated, for instance, um, in the hunt for the cattle of Gerusius. And um, as in the modern age, where um, any witty saying tends to be attributed to Winston Churchill or Dorothy Parker, so any feats of heroic strength eventually tended to get attracted to Hercules by a sort of um, gravitational force. Interesting. And um, eventually some of the legends about other ancient characters become legends about Hercules. Um, one example being when he takes on a particular river god and um, defeats the river god. Now, when you trace the legend back, what you can find is that there was a river which used to come roaring down from the mountains every springtime with the thaw and flood the plains around. And some character back in ancient history managed to set up a series of dikes, levees, 
and curved the river so that it absorbed the flood and made the place fertile. And if you go to the legend again, Hercules breaks off one of the horns of the river god, which becomes the cornucopia, the horn of plenty. Whereas, in fact, this ancient guy actually managed to turn the area so fertile that it became the horn of plenty. So you can see how the work of some anonymous engineer suddenly becomes a heroic deed by Hercules. Okay. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, that always confused me a little bit um, because I, in, in reading about Alexander, I remember that when they did their um, siege at Tyr, they had a, at Tyr, they had some kind of, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but they had a... Tired. Yeah, they had a uh, some kind of shrine to Heracles, and but it was like almost like a different version of Heracles. It was it it's like they there seemed to be um, all of these kind of different versions of some of the prominent gods and and heroes. Whether you were in you know uh, Egypt or Greece or you know or uh, yeah yeah. So I, I you know Heracles seemed to be. W- one who had the most following of all of the heroes. Is that fair to say? Um, yeah, I'd say so. Um, I mean, in my biography of him, I actually call him the first superhero. And that pretty much sums it up. And also, don't forget that, um, once again, we're looking at the telescope effect of history here. We tend to think of the Greek myths as all happening at once. But yeah. in fact, you've got a very fixed timeline so one of our first heroes is Perseus. Then you have his descendant Heracles, and then you get the next generation after that, which is Achilles and friends and the Trojan War. So Heracles is really the outstanding member of his generation. But there were others like Jason going off for the Golden Fleece, and Heracles joins him for a while. I see. So this, so and and so so there were different generations of these mythical heroes, and as you go further back, were they perceived to be more powerful or more or um it seems like uh, you know that the hero that like heroes like heracles almost seem more like superheroes to me than the heroes of the trojan war for instance um well one of the reasons was that um, almost all our early heroes were demigods um when you look at them um either well normally dad was um a god himself yeah. Um, Theseus being another example. He was a contemporary of Hercules, by the way. He was actually a drinking buddy of his. Um, so, yes, they were more powerful simply because they were generally semi-divine. But also, when you look at the story of myth, at the beginning, it's all gods. Humanity is hardly there at all. In fact, it's not there at all until Prometheus creates it. And I've always thought one of the really symbolic moments in later myth is when Athena persuades the Furies to leave the justice of Orestes, the judgment on Orestes, to a human council at the Areopagus, rather than inflicting divine vengeance. So what you see is basically the story of, if you like, the world and its destiny being turned over from the gods to the humans. And this is a progressive series of events all the way through the story of myth. Okay. Why, why were you drawn specifically to write a book about Heracles or Hercules? Um, because I watched a Disney cartoon on it and it got me so furious. <laughs> that, uh, why can't people just tell the real story? The real story is so great. <laughs> yeah. Although if somebody's going to tell the real story, it might as well be me. So I did. 
And so that you're talking, are you talking about the film, uh, Hercules, the Disney film that's, and I guess there was a TV show too. The, um, they were both. And um, both of them had me gently banging my head against the wall. You know, and that is as, as funny as that is, I really do think that that Disney movie is probably the most well-known version, at least in, a, in, you know, American culture. I don't know, but I mean, that, that would be the Hercules. When I think of that stuff, that was the movie we all saw growing up. And so when I started reading about the actual myths behind it and how different they were and more interesting and more messed up and, you know, just like the actual figure of Hercules, I was kind of blown away by just how, how different the actual myths were. And I guess one thing that I'm trying to figure out is, you know, so for instance, take Achilles we have the Iliad. And so there are different mythological traditions with Achilles and changes that happen, but we can take the Iliad and say, okay, here's a somewhat definitive kind of, you know, story about Achilles. And this is kind of the gold standard about who Achilles was and what he did. Is there anything like that for Heracles or Hercules where there's kind of a definitive story where, you know, uh, you can, kind of sum that story you can tell that story in five minutes or is it just or is it kind of a lot of different you know uh events that are just kind of you know that involve him that are all part of it well there's definitely a definitive story um okay. I wrote it. <laughs> yeah okay okay so that's but in I'm... ancient history no um the story has to be collected from various different parts and the one thing everyone knows about hercules is the labors but there was so much more of his story about that. That was basically one incident in his life. And I think my objection to the modern stories about Hercules is modern narratives, when you get right down to it, are morality tales. The good guy has to be completely good. The bad guy has to be at least 90% evil and good must triumph. The ancient Greek myths are not like that. People are a complete mixture of good and bad, and there's no idea that good must come out of it on top. In fact, good frequently doesn't come out of it on top. Medea is a total psychopath and gets away with it. Um, Hercules is a rapist, a murderer, um, a child killer, and yet the Greeks generally consider him, and as so does modern society, um, an admirable character. But in modern society, they have to do this by some pretty ruthless editing of Hercules' life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what I was surprised by. When I started reading about him, I was like, hmm, uh, this isn't the story that I've been told. Well, so I actually had a, I've been reading this book. Uh, I wish I could remember the author, but it's a very scholarly kind of thing. It's, um, it's not the easiest reading, but, um, but I've been learning some about Heracles. And I was thinking about doing a a short little podcast where I just said, here are five things you might not know. But now that I'm talking to you and you're, we're talking about this stuff, I feel like maybe we can get into a little bit of that. I mean, is most people, and we talked about this at the beginning some, but most people don't know the origin and the birth, the actual story of, of Heracles. Can, can you talk a little bit about sort of, um, about the circumstances that, uh, Hercules was, and I'm using Hercules and Heracles interchangeably here. So correct me if I'm wrong about doing that, but um, obviously Hercules is the Roman uh, name change basically to the, to the legends of Heracles. Um, 
And so uh, can you talk a little bit about kind of the birth myths and, and, and what we know and kind of what set in motion uh, Hercules's life and all of his amazing feats? Okay, yeah, that's um, pretty straightforward, really. Um, and that's um, dear old Zeus and his habit of bonking every princess that he came across. Um, in this case, um, he was particularly attracted to um, a particular um, queen, actually, because daddy was a king who was away on campaign. And because the wife was extremely faithful to him, Zeus decided the best way to have his wicked way was to actually pretend he was the husband, mm. which he did. And um, there then followed a bout of intense of sex, so intense that um, Zeus actually commanded the son to stand still for three nights while he got on with it. And the result is that Hercules was born as the result of multiple infusions of the sperm of the king of the gods. But also, when the real husband came back the next day, she also got pregnant with him. So Hercules actually had a half-brother who was born pretty much the same time. And the problem with this, of course, is that Hera was at this time the wife of Zeus, and Hera had really got the art of blaming the victim down to a real specialty. And in this case, um, she decided that as Heracles was Zeus's bastard offspring, she was going to nail Heracles no matter what it took. And she basically dedicated a lot of her time and effort to that project, which, by the way, created the galaxy. You know that story. Interesting. Okay, so one story, and I don't know, um, uh, I mean, I, I've, I've read some about kind of the myth of, um, of Heracles being born uh, like like Hera intervened so that yep. a different um, so that basically some a, a, a different boy was born and proclaimed to be king. Is yeah. that correct? What, what was yeah. that? What was that all about? And how did that impact uh, Heracles? Okay, um, basically um, Hera got Zeus to promise that the firstborn king of a particular line called the Peloponid line um, would become king. And then when Heracles was due to be born, she basically froze the labor of the mother so that another lad, a guy called Eurystheides, I think he was, um, I've prepared on peoples of the ancient world, you understand? Um, no, I know, anyway, I know, it's, I can't, I don't know how people, I, you know. Uh, anyway, he became king instead of Heracles. So Heracles was actually cheated out of his rightful inheritance as um king of this chunk of the Peloponnese. And the result is, of course, the guy who was the king spent his entire life looking over his shoulder for a vengeful Heracles to come descending upon him and whack him on the head with his mighty club, which he came pretty close to doing at times. And that impacted, and because, and, and didn't, um, didn't that kind of help set in motion the, the different labors and trials that Hercules had to had to do throughout his life he had a well, pretty the, tough life well th this again is um, Hera coming in because um hercules had just fit, was settled down with a wife and kids and was living quite happily and um at that point while he's sacrificing um to the gods Hera sends the goddess of madness a lady called lissa to come and infect him and hercules actually thinks he's killing the kids of eurystheus um Whereas, in fact, he's killing his own kids. You notice, by the way, he's no objection to killing kids. It's just that it's his kids instead of the kids of his enemy he thinks he's killing. 
Right. Um, and the result of that is because he's now um, cursed with blood guilt for killing his own family. And one of the things about the Greeks is there were no excuses. If you did it, you did it. And the reason you did it is irrelevant. So he has to purge himself of the blood guilt. So he's given the labors, which he then has to perform before he's exonerated. Wow. And these labors, these are the, tw- we're talking about the 12 labors of Heracles where he, he, and I don't know if it's a definitive number, but we know of it now as 12, I guess. And yeah, technically yeah. there were 10. He was disqualified from two of them. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and this is where he, of course, uh, fought the multi-headed dragon and the- Yeah, he was disqualified for that because he had an assistant. He was oh, okay. labors alone. The other one was cleaning out the Aegean stables because he did that for hire. So they reckoned that wasn't a proper labor. Okay, so, okay. And then we also have him uh, fighting against the Nemean lion, right? Yeah. Those are the ones that I know of. Um, and obviously, uh, we don't need to list all of them, but those are the, the famous ones that I remember. Um, but um, so. One of the interesting things about the labors is they start off very local. The Nemean lion, for example, it required a journey of about two days to get to the place. But as Eurystheus gets more desperate, he starts sending Heracles further and further away. So for the cattle of um, Gerion, he has to go all the way out to what are probably now the Canary Islands. To get the apple of the Hesperides, he has to travel well beyond the frontiers of the known world. And of course, for the final labor, he has to actually descend to the underground and get Carabas, the three-headed dog. Okay. Right, the three-headed dog. I remember that one too. Um, so, okay, and, and you describe uh, Hercules as the first superhero, which I that when I saw that title, I just wanted to ask you about it because we've we're starting to look at that kind of thing. I've been reading about it. It's a it's an interesting premise, um, and it's it's also interesting to me how much of these modern films and stuff. I haven't seen all of the Marvel films and all these things yet, but when I even just seeing the previews and reading a little bit, it reminds me so much of this ancient Greek and Roman mythology. It's like, you know, it's just our own, our own version. It's being, you know, it's some of the concepts are very similar. Um, Except but, of course, our heroes are good guys. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and that's something, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that's really important. And um, we think of, Basically, we have a very kind of strict good versus evil sort of mentality with our superhero stories. And in ancient Greece, being a hero didn't necessarily mean that you were some compassionate person. Um, what kind of when what were the heroes and and what how is the meaning a little bit different than today's meaning of a hero? Okay. Um... I think a good equivalent would be when we look at um, medieval knights. Um, We know what a knight was meant to be, which is the flower of chivalry. We also know that an awful lot of medieval knights did not actually live up to that designation. And in the same way, a hero, if you look at them in the Iliad, it means basically leader of a war band. Mm. Um, A ancient aristocrat who was not of the rank of a king, but something just below that. And... um, an example of that, think of heroes more in lines of sir or lord. And have, have you ever considered the feminine of hero? That's Hera, lady. Hera, okay. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So you have lords and ladies, heroes and heroes. Okay. And, then, and like you said, a lot of these 
the early, the, you know, these generations of mythical heroes were believed to be descended from the gods, um, uh, you know, and Her Heracles' father was Zeus, Achilles' mother was Thetis. Um, I haven't looked into some of the other heroes like Jason. Uh, oh, no, J Jason's actually, his dad was a king. He, he was okay. not directly a god. Theseus's dad was Poseidon. Um, okay. Zeus was Zeus again. I think at one stage I worked out Zeus managed to be his own great nephew, which is quite an achievement. And a lot of the historical Greek peoples believe that they were descended from these heroes on, you know, by however many generations. I, I don't understand quite how the timelines of it all work and whether they believed, you know, 10 generations ago or, you know, no, they, they had some pretty precise genealogies worked out. Um, for instance, you've heard of the stand of the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. Yeah. And one of the reasons Leonidas, the king, put up such a great stand is that um, he could actually see from where he was fighting the place where his ancestor Heracles actually died, where his funeral pyre was put on top of the mountain. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And I'll remind listeners um, that our guest today has also written a book about Sparta. Um, <laughs> Uh, and let's see, that is called Sparta Rise of a Warrior Nation. Well, you know, we're going to maybe have to do this again sometime because uh, you've covered so much material uh, in this conversation and in your books and on your website that I just, I would love to talk to you about more of these subjects, um, uh, you know, at some time. Um, today, we've been talking about uh, uh, the book Hercules, the first superhero as well as the um, book just published last year, a new book called The Forgotten Peoples of the Ancient World. And I'm here with Philip Matty Matishak. Is that, did I get that right? A little better? You right? did, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, who is a British uh, author and historian um, and writer. And so uh, is there anything else that um, people should know about uh, your work, obviously, these books are available on Amazon, I believe. Um, and, yeah. then you, and then you have a website, um, a personal website, and that is uh, matishakbooks.com. And I'll link that on the Ancient Heroes website and in the show notes. Um, is there anywhere else that people should know to follow the, the work that you're doing? And, um, and I guess uh, you talked a little bit about what, you, what you're working on now that's coming soon. Um, feel free to elaborate on that some. I'm curious uh, um, about that. Well, um, that's about the gods of Greece and Rome um, and the process of what we call syncretism, how they basically merged into becoming one common set of gods with um, a joint ancestry, etc., and only different names. But they originally started off, and this is what intrigued me, as quite different gods until the Romans realized, you know, um, we quite like the Greek theology, so we have to adopt not just their gods to some extent, but their way of thinking about religion. And just trying to get into the heads of how the Romans thought about religion is actually quite edifying. When you think of a lot of their gods as concepts and embodiments of the perfect way of doing things rather than divinities in the modern sense, their religion makes an awful lot more sense. Wow. Okay. When are you, when are you uh, thinking that, that that book might come out? Um, that'll be out next year if um, all goes according to schedule. Okay, great, great. Well, we'll keep a lookout for that. Um, well, uh, thanks for joining us today, uh, Matty. And um, 
I really appreciate your insight and I apologize for not, I know we were just going to talk about the Forgotten People's <laughs> book and then I asked you a bunch of questions about Hercules and it always amazes me when uh, people can just kind of talk about it, uh, you know, effortlessly like you have, uh, even though that book I think came out a few years ago. So, um, this, yeah. this is my hobby as well as my job. So. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, good. Okay, well, thanks again for coming on and I will send you a link as soon as we post the episode. Okay, and um, good luck tweaking the volume. I, I will try and change my headsets in due course. I think it will be okay. I, I'm just gonna have to turn it up a little bit, um, and I think it will. I think it will work just fine. So, all right. Well, thank you, and have a have a good day. Thanks very much. Thanks to Derek Feister for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.